Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. A psychopath gets the words, but not the music of emotion. This is one of the quotes from the book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths by Kevin Dutton. And in this podcast, we're going to talk about this particular book, uh, what it is that is... <laughs> wise I suppose about psychopaths or what it is that we can learn from psychopaths but we're also going to talk about the follow-up book to this it's like uh, the t- two sides of the same coin if you like and the other book is called uh, the good psychopaths guide to success and it's actually more about what you can act what you can learn from psychopaths and how you can actually put it into practice obviously right the, the name of the first book the wisdom of psychopaths is a bit of a juxtaposition with the words wisdom and psychopath on the same front cover and the author Kevin Dutton he actually addresses that in the book as well that it's you know that's kind of part of the the marketing thing but what he's talking about ultimately in this book is that when we think about a psychopath we essentially think of serial killers or people who are uh, completely cold and unemotional and his point in this book is that it's a bit more nuanced than that of course those people who do those kinds of things those Ted Bundy's and Jeffrey Dahmer's and all those kind of lads they are of course psychopaths but they are what he would call like a, a sliding scale they're at, they're at 100 if you like they're absolutely they they can they can say all the right things and they can act in a certain way but they don't actually know what emotions are they don't uh, they don't really understand empathy they can't understand it from another person's point of view and his point in this book is that if it's a sliding scale and at the far end of the scale is people who are completely emotional people who uh, can always empathize with other people and he says that there are characteristics along that sliding scale that are useful for you and I to put into practice or to at least think about. So what I think I'll do with this podcast, I think I'm going to go from one book to the other. And I would suggest that if you are interested in, in, <laughs> in learning from psychopaths or what the characteristics are, that uh, you get both books and um, go through both of them. If you're, only going to, if you're only thinking about getting one of the books, get the second one, the, the good, good Psychopath's Guide to Success so some of the characteristics that a psychopath would have are shared with characteristics that successful people would have and what he talks about is that successful people and psychopaths both have a positive view of themselves or an incredibly positive view of themselves great self-belief they can be very persuasive right they naturally understand other people it's almost like a subject in an experiment to them that they they can read other people they can understand the principles ultimately of persuasion but he also says that some and again this isn't you know sweeping generalization but he just says that some successful people are reckless or they're fearless and it's the same with people who are the serial killers who we generally think about when we think about uh, psychopaths and and, and the things that psychopaths in general are considered to to have done or uh, or considered to be i suppose he says that psychopathic people are people some of the same characteristics of successful people and of psychopaths is that they are charming they're good speakers and they can be very entertaining right they're they're good at a crowd um, and really what this comes down to again at the the far end of the scale the the serial killer end of the scale is they're good at mimicking they're good at just mimicking what they believe is uh, charming or what they like they understand the rules if you like rather than uh, and the, the reason they understand the rules is because they need to get by in society just like everybody else. And so they, they learn the rules and then they, they're able to just kind of internalize them even though they don't actually feel any emotions. 
And one of the things he says in this book, which is very interesting, the first book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, is he says that back in the, the caveman days, as I generally call it, he said being free of risk or like being that kind of recklessness or fearlessness was very useful because if you were being hunted down by a saber-toothed tiger, having no fear was very, very useful uh, because there'd be no hesitation. There's, if there's fear, there'll be hesitation. And people who are free of fear or are just big risk-takers, there's no hesitation. Uh, they kill the saber-toothed tiger and uh, the whole tribe survives. That's the idea. One of the things that a psychopath will do or what a successful person will do is that they'll take action over contemplation. They're, they don't really procrastinate. They're, they, they're known just to take action and they don't really think about the consequences because they've no fear and also they don't generally harbour regrets about things either. And because they've no regrets, they've no fear of failure. So it doesn't hinder them. That's the whole idea. He talks about how these characteristics can lead to people taking up roles in, in, in risky careers like firefighters or bomb disposal experts and you've probably read about those kinds of things before there's people who when the pressure is on like that they just seem to get calmer they seem to thrive under that pressure everyone knows that expression of thriving under pressure but there are some people and it has been recorded who are put into these high pressure situations and their heart rate their pulse goes down he tells a story about neil armstrong when he was landing on the moon as you can imagine, it's a fairly high-risk situation, a lot of pressure, basically the entire world is watching. And you had Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in the capsule, whatever the thing it's called, the lunar lander, um, I think it's called. And they're looking to land, and the problem was that there was no flat area for them to land. They were running out of time because they were running out of fuel. And Buzz Aldrin is starting to sweat a little bit, he's starting to get a little bit panicky. And you can actually see this in the film... Uh, what's it called, First Man with Ryan Gosling. It's a great film and it, it, it does this particular scene really well. The problem was there was too many rocks, too many boulders. It wasn't just about being able to land. They had to make sure that they could safely take off again uh, so that they weren't left there. And what Armstrong did, he was just very pragmatic about the whole thing and, and Buzz Aldrin was saying, you know, we need to get this thing landed immediately. And Neil Armstrong said to, to Aldrin, he said, I want you to convert the amount of fuel we have left into seconds. So rather than tell me, you know, we need to land really quickly, give it to me in very pragmatic and logical terms. And you can hear, if you listen back to the audio or watch the film, you can you can hear Buzz Aldrin at 70, at 60. These are seconds now you've got, before we're going to run out of fuel, 50, 40, 30, 20. And just, they're, they're looking around basically for somewhere to land. And Neil Armstrong, his pulse is getting lower and lower. And eventually he gets to a point with just 10 seconds left. He spots his chance and dumps it on the ground, right? I'm sure he didn't dump it on the ground, but he, he puts it down pretty pretty quick smart. And what's really interesting is that it's, it's almost like his brain, it's like a predator zooming in on, our, on its prey. And his brain just kind of had this narrow focus. He's not thinking about his mortgage about in that particular moment. He's not thinking about anything other than the task at hand. And being able to just understand, okay, got 20 seconds and 10 seconds left, just, just to find a spot, okay, and I would imagine at that point when he's got 70 seconds left, maybe he's got three different options. At 40 seconds left, okay, he's, he's narrowed that down to, to two options, and then at 10 seconds, okay, out of time, pick an option and go for it, and he, and he obviously landed successfully. There's lots of examples out there of, of people who are in high-pressure situations who just seem to be able to handle it. For example, I don't know if you watch American football, if you know much about American football, but when the quarterback gets the ball, he's got maybe two, three seconds to get rid of that ball before he just gets dumped to the ground by the, the oncoming tacklers. And when you look at this American football, 
generally what they do is they set they set up maybe three or four different options for each play. And for each option, the quarterback has to decide, is that the person to throw to? Is that the person to throw to? Is that the person to throw to? They check their options and then they make a decision. So that decision making has to be really quick. And there's no point doing it in a panic. They, they just have to do it in a very calm, cool, collected way. Other people then, other professions, like I, I mentioned bomb disposal experts and firefighters and that, Another one is hedge fund managers, people who, who essentially move money around, right? The, the people who invest your, your tens of millions of dollars or euros or pounds, whatever it is. And there's a, there's a great, I'm sure you've heard of Bernie Madoff. He's basically the, the person who came up with the greatest or the biggest, I shouldn't say the greatest, the biggest Ponzi scheme of all time, where he was literally taking in money, telling people that he was investing it and just paying off uh, his other investors. It was just a huge, big Ponzi scheme. There's a fictionalized version of that story about Bernie Madoff with uh, Robert De Niro in it. And there's an incredible scene where there's Bernie Madoff and then there's his right-hand man basically knows exactly what Bernie Madoff is doing. Basically, they're the only two people who know that the whole thing is a scam. The other guy, the right-hand man fella, his job is to make up the fake invoices and the the fake documentation that's needed to, to keep the whole show on the road. And he rings Robert De Niro and says, basically, there's a, a hole in our fund of $250 million. If we don't get this $250 million by the end of tomorrow, then the whole thing is going to come tumbling down and we're going to get found out. And Bernie Madoff, or Robert De Niro in this case, hangs up the phone. And literally, as he hangs up the phone, he turns around and he's at this black tie event. This guy says, listen, I'm looking to invest in your fund. And you would think, given the phone call that, that Bernie Madoff has just had... And this guy says, I'm willing to invest in your fund. You'd think he'd jump on it, but he doesn't. And he says, the fund is closed. We're not taking in any more money. He goes, oh, come on. I've got $60 million that I want to put into the fund. Please, this is, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it's a great opportunity. Bernie Madoff says, the fund is closed. We're not taking in any more money. And the whole time knowing that if he doesn't get $250 million in by tomorrow, he's going to jail. And he just perseveres. And the guy goes from 60 million to 100 million to 120 million. And he just keeps offering more and more money. And he says, listen, I would love to help you out, but the, the fund is closed. We're not taking any more investments at the moment. Eventually, your man agrees to put in $250 million. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll have my people call it tomorrow. Imagine how unemotional you would have to be in that particular situation. And you could say Bernie Madoff, absolute crook. There is no question about it. But he is absolutely on the on the the register for being a psychopath he just has no qualms about taking people's money and just keeping the shoulder he just doesn't care just and just so unemotional about the whole thing but what's really interesting in this book as well is now actually i should say that in the book he doesn't mention bernie madoff just just my own example but in the book he does talk about a functioning psychopath being able to switch it on and off and the example he gives of some high-powered lawyer who is able to be in a courtroom and destroy the opposition and then go home to their kids. That, that kind of thing where they, they enjoy the kill, they enjoy the chase, they enjoy the, the power of winning, but then being able to switch it off. And that's ultimately what you're being being asked to do here in this with these books, is to, is to think about what are the characteristics of my personality that I could dial up or dial down. And he describes a mixing desk, like in a recording studio where you turn up the treble, turn down the bass, that kind of thing. And he has all of the different characteristics listed out on, on what you should be looking to dial up, what you should be looking to dial down. I won't get into them all because I think there's 14 or 15 of them. But it's a hugely interesting look at what way you should think about the things you should do 
I'll give you an example. One of them is assertiveness. The more assertive you are, the more successful you're likely to be. There's another great book called The Game by Neil Strauss. So if you know that one, it's, 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 I won't get into what the topic is. You can, you can look it up if you like. But one of the things he says is that you should have an opinion on everything. If you want to be seen as successful or if you want to actually be successful, you have to be assertive. You have to have an opinion on everything. And in that book, The Game, he talks about if you're in a restaurant and you order a salad and the person serving you says, what type of lettuce would you like? Who cares? I don't know. Whatever lettuce. That's not what you do. You're assertive. You have an opinion on everything. I want iceberg lettuce or I want rocket or spinach, whatever it's going to be that you want in your salad. doesn't matter. Just have an opinion on everything. And that's one of the things you can do to be more assertive is think about those kinds of things. In the other book, the Good Psychopath's Guide to Success. He mentions seven principles, seven things that follow on from the first book. I guess they've broken it down into, I say they, there's actually two authors on the second book. One is Kevin Dutton, and the other guy is Andy McNabb, uh, who wrote Bravo 2.0, which actually gets better with every read, according to Alan Partridge. <laughs> but Andy McNabb is, by his own definition, a psychopath. And he, the two of them kind of have a conversation back and forth in the second book about situations that they find themselves in or scenarios that they kind of make up and they decide what would they do, what would they not do in this particular situation. But between the two of them, they've come up with seven principles of a, what a good psychopath would do, somebody who's a functioning psychopath. I'll list out these seven things and we'll give a few examples and uh, we'll take it from there then. One, the first principle is that a psychopath just does it. They just go for it. There's no hesitation. There's no procrastination. He talks about examples of making that phone call, sending that email, uh, paying that bill, whatever it is, don't procrastinate. You just go for it. And again, in that book, The Game, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what the book, The Game, is about. The Game is about the pickup community, right? The pickup community is all about seducing uh, people that you might have a an attraction to, let's say. Uh, how you go about doing it, right? It, it, it was it was very popular when it came out a few years ago now and, and it kind of the whole thing went a bit dark and got a bit twisted and whatever but there's some interesting psychological things in that and one of the things that they say in that book the game is they call it the three second rule if you're thinking about approaching somebody in a public situation whether it's a, a, a bar gym coffee shop bookshop whatever you've got three seconds to do it if you if you take any more than three seconds you're going to hesitate, you're going to procrastinate, that little voice in your head is going to say, don't do it, you're going to be embarrassed, you're going to be humiliated, all those things that are probably not true. Uh, those kinds of voices start to come into your head. So the, the whole point is that you've got a three-second rule, just don't hesitate. So that's the first principle that they talk about in, in this book, which is pretty much the same thing as, as they talk about in the game. Just do it. Just don't procrastinate, just do it. Don't think about it, just do it. Even if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter, just do it. The second thing they talk about, the second principle, is that psychopaths nail it. They know how to win. One of the examples they give in the book is um, they're the two authors, Kevin Dutton and, and Andy McNabb, they're in a, a black cab, a taxi in, in London. And Andy McNabb asks the driver, as you generally do in taxis, are you busy, right? Have, have you, how's, how's your day going kind of thing? And the guy says, because of the good weather, uh, it doesn't go well. People don't want to get taxis around the place. They're happy to walk. They go into the park and, and drink beer and get drunk and all that kind of stuff. They're not as interested in taxis. It's like, you know, getting lifts around the place. They're happy to walk. And 
The taxi driver then says something really interesting. He says that he's going to have to work longer now to make the £200 that he needs to cover the cost of the rent and the diesel for the taxi for the day. And Andy McNabb, who is a psychopath, and by his own definition, his own admission, he, he says he just doesn't understand this. Why would you, on the days that you're not making money, why would you work extra hard? His point is that on the days that you are making money, so the days obviously where it's cold or it's raining or, you know, you're busy, that's when you should go flat out. You shouldn't be trying to go flat out on the days that you're not making money, that things are not going well. They're the days you should knock it on the head and go home. His point is that if a lot of people, psychopaths, know how to win. They, they're, they just seem to flip these things. Oh, work hard when the money is there to be made. Don't work hard because you have to hit that hit a certain target that you're just probably never going to hit because the, the conditions are not right. He also tells a story in the book about... Uh, it's actually not a story, it's a scenario, which is a really, really interesting one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you and uh, you can have a think then about what you think you would do in this particular situation. So I'll read out what it says here. It says... Okay, imagine there are 20 telephone boxes all in a line. I show you into one of these telephone boxes and close the door. In front of you, where the telephone would usually be, is a big red button. Underneath the button are the following instructions. You must remain in this telephone box for 10 minutes without pressing this button. There are 19 other people in the same position as you in the other boxes. If, after 10 minutes, no one has pressed the button, everyone will receive £10,000. But if, before the 10 minutes is up, someone does press the button, then the experiment will immediately terminate, the person who pressed the red button will receive £2,500, and everyone else gets nothing. The time will commence when the buttons light up. Thank you for participating in the study. So think about that. All you have to do, if you're in the one of those telephone boxes, those 20 telephone boxes, is to just not press the button. And if everyone just understands that, just don't press the button, we're all going to get 10 grand. Uh, you would think everyone would just not press the button, just wait out the 10 minutes. But Andy McNabb, being the psychopath that he is, said he would immediately press the button. The first second that the light went on, he'd bang, hit the button. And his point is that, well, you know, it's 2,500. I can't, I don't know anyone else. I don't, he doesn't, he doesn't use empathy to think what's everyone else probably thinking. Just hit the button. Just go for it. And there's also another experiment. And it's in, actually, before I get on to the other uh, thought experiment, which is a, a famous one. It's an interesting way. I personally, I, I don't know what I would do. I think I probably would hit the button. Uh, I would probably hesitate a little bit. And the more I hesitated, the more I'd panic. Uh, but I think I probably would hit the button. I don't know what that says about me. But he said he'd hit it. He just There's no thought. There's no hesitation. It's just hit it. And that's kind of to do with knowing how to win. right? He knows how to just get on with it. Uh, no hesitation. No procrastination. Just get on with it. So there's another very famous experiment. about, And this experiment, I don't know. It's a thought experiment. I don't know if there's ever really a right answer. It's called a trolley experiment. The idea is that you are standing beside a train line and there's a trolley or a train, let's say, uh, on its way down the tracks. If you don't do anything, further down the track away from you, there are five people. And those five people are certain to die because they're tied to the tracks or whatever. Uh, if, if nothing happens, if the train keeps going the way it's going and it is likely to keep going the way it's going, those five people are going to die. However... Right beside where you're standing, beside the tracks, there's a lever. 
And what that lever does, if you push that lever, it switches the train onto a different track. I'm sure you've seen it where they, they shove that big lever over in the olden days. The train goes onto another track and you save the five people. The problem is that on the other track that you're diverting it to, there's one person tied to the track. So now your problem is, or the, the dilemma is, do I do nothing and let the five people die? Or do I hit the lever, move the train onto the other track and let the one person die? Do nothing, five die, do something, one dies. The psychopath has absolutely no qualms, you hit that lever. The person who is not a psychopath, I don't know, there is no right or wrong answer to that, I don't think, but it's interesting that the psychopath, the person who is just unemotional about it, just adds up the numbers. Five versus one, there's no question, you would do it. But then in the book, they add another element to it, where the train, or the trolley is, as it's in the, the famous experiment, train is on its way down the track, and there is five people on the track, uh, tied to the track. There's no lever this time, there's no second way for the train to go there's five people they're going to get killed your option this time is to push another person in front of the train this person is of a particularly big girth and their size is going to derail the train and save the five people and again it's an interesting scenario because are you going to literally commit murder to save five people or do you just let the five people die and not commit murder and again when you're faced with this kind of dilemma psychopath is no problem you, you just push the person in front of the in front of the, the train and kill the one person and let the five people survive what's the big deal they're perfectly happy to push somebody in front of the train that's how the cookie crumbles and then so we're talking about there is is i'm kind of mixing up the two things there i'm kind of combining the two first principles of just doing it just get on with it there's no hesitation no procrastination just do it and uh, knowing how to win nailing it the second principle one of the things he says about the, the taxi drivers, right, getting back to that idea of the taxi drivers and the, you know, working your backside off on a day where it's not going to happen for you versus working really hard when the money is there to be made. One of the things they talk about is that somebody who is successful, they know how to win, but one of the reasons they know how to win is because th they have a clear goal in mind. Right. If you look at that taxi driver, you might say, well, he needs to make 200 quid every day to at least cover his expenses. But really, in a five-day week, he needs to earn a grant. So maybe one day he can earn 500 quid, another day he can take a day off. So that's what they mean about nailing it. Uh, that's the second principle they know how to win, is that they know what they want. They know what the ultimate goal is. The ultimate goal is to probably do as little work as possible and still be able to make money to live your life. It's not about thinking about things in the granular sense of um, I make 200 quid today and 200 quid the next day and 200 quid the day after. It's a, it's a bigger game than that, according to a psychopath. The third principle is to be your own person. So one of the things that a psychopath has is they have immense self-belief. They talk about the principle of groupthink, right? If you've ever heard of that. Groupthink is essentially when you're in a meeting in your job and the boss, the CEO, whoever it is, has a very strong opinion about what the next next task should be or the, what the strategy should be for marketing or sales or you know product development, whatever it is. The boss, the person in charge, has a very strong opinion about how things should go. And the people who are going along with that are just, they, they just want to be seen as to be part of the, the group or there's always safety in numbers. So even if they have the exact opposite opinion, 
to the CEO, to the boss, whoever it is, they just kind of go along with it because, you know, they don't, they don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. And in the book, they talk about an experiment where, and this is all, again, all to do a group think where uh, there is 10 people in a room nine of them are plants right there they're in on the experiment the 10th person is not and they're shown four lines right just four vertical black lines on a page um there's a b c and d and line d is of a particular length a b and c are of various lengths but one of the a b or c lines is the same length as d right so explain that again there's four vertical lines of random lengths d is of a particular length and it's slightly separate to a b and c a b and c are of different lengths but one of those is very obviously the same length as d and the 10 people are asked which of the lines a b or c is the same length as d it's very obvious that in the in the example it gives in the book it's very obvious that the line b is the same length as d but what's really interesting is that they go around the 10 people, and remember nine of these people are in on the experiment, and the first nine people give the wrong answer. They all say A. A is the same length as D, which it clearly isn't. And when it gets to the 10th person, more often than not, by a good, like a large percentage of people, would just agree. Because they start to doubt themselves. Especially nine people ahead of you is a lot of people to say that uh, you know, you're look, you're, you'd start to deny what you can see with your own eyes because of groupthink is such a strong thing. So one of the things that a a successful psychopath or a good psychopath, whatever you want to call it, a successful psychopath will do is they'll be their own person. They're, they don't go along with groupthink. And I'm not saying you should be a contrarian just to be a contrarian, but you should be aware of your own mind. And am I just falling in with the crowd here because I, I, this is what I uh, I think I should do? Or is it really your opinion? And he says that people who are rule breakers like that, so people who are uh, who don't conform, they they like a psychopath will always break rules, right? They 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 break rules all the time. But not only will they break rules, they'll be actually quite good problem solvers because a lot of the times a problem is presented to somebody, and they're told that this this and this can't happen. And what it does is it 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 hinders creative thinking. Where somebody who's a psychopath or somebody who says the rules don't apply to me or, or you know, these the rules you've given me as to why this problem can't be solved, they don't apply to me. That allows for creative thinking. So the third principle is that you need to be your own person. You just need to build your self-belief. The fourth principle is what they call be a persuasion black belt. Now, I've done podcasts and I've, I've done courses as well. I've written courses for you. You're very welcome. On uh, persuasion techniques, especially the book Influence the Psychology of Persuasion. Go and listen to that podcast where we talk about the, the six principles of persuasion and how to actually implement them. But in this book, he says the fourth principle of a psychopath's guide to success or a good psychopath's guide to success is to be a persuasion black belt. And this particular chapter actually starts off with a a quote from uh, Arch Archbishop Desmond Tutu, I think. He says, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. He says, this isn't Desmond Tutu now, that's the end of that quote, but in the book, the authors say that there's a few different things uh, to keep in mind when it comes to persuasion. Now, these tie in quite nicely with what Robert Cialdini says in his book, uh, Persuasion, the, the Psychology of... Uh, oh, sorry, Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. The six principles, I won't get into them now, you can go and listen to that podcast. But he, in this book, they talk about simplicity. 
uh, people are persuaded by things that are simple, easy to understand. And if you want another book on that, go for Thinking Fast and Slow, which is um, a book about how we all make assumptions because it just otherwise we end up with um, analysis paralysis. But the example they give for persuasion in, in this book, or specifically to do with simplicity, to be persuasive, is the stock market. And that in a day, in a, in a day's trading on the stock market, if your company has a an acronym like a, a short version of your of your company's name that's pronounceable, you're likely to make ten percent more because more people invest in that particular company. For example, they talk about Google, right? Google on the stock exchange is called Goog, right? G O O G, uh, as opposed to another company that is called Ordo. It's not pronounceable. You can't pronounce Ordo. You have to say it out. But when something is simple and easy to say, it just gets more investment, which is crazy uh but you know it's been proven to be true other things they talk about uh, when it comes to persuasion is perceived self-interest and if you're going to try and persuade somebody to do something you have to almost convince them that it's their idea or that there's something in it for them as as cruel as that might sound it's just how the world is everyone wants to know what's in it for me if you want an example of that think about when a budget comes out like the government budget how everybody goes on about themselves why should i pay more tax how come i'm this how come that everyone and it doesn't matter how altruistic you are uh, how much empathy you have for the rest of your your fellow citizens the your first thought is generally well how's that going to affect me am i going to make more money is that going to cost me more money am i paying more taxes everyone has self-interest and if you understand that you can argue about the the ethics of that all you like but it's just a fact. It's just what human nature is. Everyone is out to survive and to replicate. That's ultimately the the base reason um, uh, for for human beings, right? That's our, that's our, our there are base motivations, if you like, um, and everything pretty much revolves around that. It can be can be pared down back into that. One of the things I talk about then is uh, having confidence, incongruity. Um, so when things are kind of slightly awry or slightly. Uh, things that don't go together they, there's brilliant examples in the book about that but uh, you can look it up and have empathy as well which can be <laughs> obviously from a psychopath's point of view that can be faked and um, it can only be faked to a certain certain degree though i suppose there's a great story that they mention in this book and i've i've talked about it in i think in the podcast i did on mastery by robert green and it's a story about benjamin franklin so benjamin franklin was a lot of things to a lot of people um one of the forefathers of America basically helped write the Constitution, I believe. If I, I hope I've got that right. Um, also invented the bifocals, the glasses. <laughs> but he was also a part of uh, the legislator in Pennsylvania, I think. And one of the things that he, uh, in his youth, he would seem to, he, by his own admission, he was very naive, right? He seemed to just fall for scams and when people would promise him the world, he'd believe it. And he got basically got sick of this. He got sick of just always being naive and started to examine his own thought process on when people would promise him the world. So as such, then what happened as a result of that, I should say, he ended up getting very good at reading people or understanding human psychology just by purely understanding it uh, in his own life and, and how things were impacting him. And as he was going for re-election in, as part of the, uh, the, the legislator, he was vehemently opposed by a guy called Isaac Norris. And Isaac Norris was this up-and-coming, uh, you know, hotshot, I suppose, in the day. But he came from a wealthy background. He was quite entitled. Um, there was a lot of bravado about him. And 
what he says in this book, Mastery, where, he, we, where uh, Robert Greene, the author, talks about Benjamin Franklin. He says that this guy, Isaac Norris, he had so much bravado and brashness to him that it was obvious that he was quite low in self-belief, right? He didn't necessarily ne- believe in himself. He kind of had, you know, confidence issues and it came out as bravado and that kind of thing. And so he was dead against Benjamin Franklin getting re-elected. Now, as it happened, Benjamin Franklin got re-elected anyway, but he knew that there was danger on the horizon with this guy, Isaac Norris. And he thought long and hard about how he could get this guy, he could turn this guy from an enemy into a uh, a friend, essentially, somebody who could be on his side. So what he decided to do, uh, and this is something to do with cognitive dissonance, it's called. What he decided to do was to ask this guy, Isaac Norris, for a lend of a book. Now, this book he was asking for a lend of was hugely uh, rare. It was like this guy, Isaac Norris, was always going on about his book collection and uh, all the rare books that he had. And this one was like one of the rarest books that he could uh, possibly own. But Benjamin Franklin, which seems like a weird thing to do, but he went and he asked for a le- he He wrote the guy a letter and said, is there any chance I heard you have this book? Um, I'd really love to have a look at it and I'll return it, you know, within a week and so on. And what's happened there, and this is what cognitive dissonance is, and this is an incredible persuasion technique or principle, if you like, of persuasion, is that Benjamin Franklin understood what would happen in Isaac Norris's head when he received this request for a lend of the book. Cognitive dissonance will not allow you to hold two competing thoughts or two competing emotions, if you like, at the same time. And what your brain will do, it'll just solve the problem. It'll just solve the riddle for you. So when Benjamin Franklin asks for a lend of the book, in Isaac Norris's head, he thinks, I hate Benjamin Franklin, but I'm going to give him a lend of the book. And that's the cognitive dissonance. I'm going to give him a lend of the book. Well, I couldn't really hate him. Well, maybe actually I do like him. Uh, Otherwise, why would I give him a lend of the book? And he gives him a lend of the book, right? So what happens in Isaac Norris's head is that he, uh, his brain resolves that that error, that dissonance for him, and says, well, well, clearly I do like him if I do if I if I'm giving a lend of the book. But what Benjamin Franklin understood was that he knew that he was catering to Isaac Norris's ego. It made Isaac Norris feel good. Yeah, I have the book that he wants, and now he wants. He knew that's what Isaac Norris was was thinking, but in Isaac Norris's head, he he didn't he didn't understand himself from that point of view. So Benjamin Franklin basically used some black magic on him. Uh, got a lend of the book, read the book, g- gave it back to him, and uh, wrote a letter saying thanks so much for lending. I really really appreciate it. And then the two of them became uh, firm allies for the rest of their careers, basically. And that's how Benjamin Franklin got him on side. That's how he understood uh, the, what they're talking about in this book, the, the Good Psychopath's Guide to Success. He understood the persuasion technique, or he basically was a persuasion black belt, by understanding that something, that, that kind of request to another person it seems like, well, this guy hates me. Why is he going to do a favour for me? And the reason he did the favour is because it massaged his ego. By, by Isaac Norris doing the favour for Benjamin Franklin, it massaged Isaac Norris's ego. So it's, it's, it's a genius little thing that, uh, that I talk about this book and I talk about the other book, Mastery, as well, about uh, the, the fourth principle of, uh, of being a good psychopath is, uh, is to study people. 
is to understand that persuasion techniques uh, work if you know how to use them correctly. So genius little thing. And I should say as well about this book, there are so many examples. There are so there's so much in specifically in the second book about practical applications of these principles that is a hundred percent worth getting that book and i don't get any money for by the way for for you buying the book i just i'm a big fan of these books that i talk about in the podcast and that's why i do it so um great book you should definitely get it that's my point fifth principle then is to take it on the chin right is to move on uh psychopaths because they don't have much emotion they they can fake it all you like but they they don't really feel anything they don't feel regrets they don't feel uh, they don't feel bad when somebody is is mean to them they just take it on the chin and they move on they give a few examples in the book again they've got lots of examples i pulled out a few examples here of opportunities for you to take it on the chin and move on one of the examples they they give is that if uh, you know and it's happened to everyone where you're in traffic somebody cuts you up in traffic cuts in in front of you uh, does something rude you know that they shouldn't be doing and we immediately go into a rage right where we shout and roar you end up in an argument with somebody um, from time to time another example they give is uh where you go for a promotion and you don't get it and you end up seething right you end up uh doing your job half arsed for the next six months because as punishment to the <laughs> to the organization Another one they say is that, uh, another example they give is, is you invite friends to a party. One of your friends cancels, says they can't make it because they're not well. You find out afterwards they actually went to a different party instead. So those three examples there, what they talk about in the book is what a psychopath would do. They just move on, take it on the chin and move on. They don't really care. Now you might be listening to that and be thinking, well, you know, that's very hurtful if somebody uh, says they're going to go to your party and then they don't. It's devastating. You go for a promotion and you don't get it. And uh, being in traffic, you know, we've all been in those situations where it just feels good to release that valve sometimes. Their point is that you have to control your emotions. Otherwise, and this is a, a, a brilliant quote that they give in the book, is you don't want to give the keys to your feelings to somebody else. Right, so uh, an example, I've, I've kind of talked about this in, in different things I've done before, but one of the examples, a, a simple example I used to give was, imagine you're going into a building, right, and a person ahead of you opens the door and they walk in, and they don't hold the door for you. They let the door slam in your face, right? Straight away, you're probably cursing that person. But what you've done in that particular situation, just like all the other examples I gave there, is you're giving the keys to your emotions to somebody else. You could say that person is rude, they're ignorant, they're whatever, whatever, whatever. Or you could just decide on something else. You could decide, I don't, I don't know what that person's got. Maybe they are rude. Maybe they genuinely didn't see me. Maybe they just got the worst news of their life 10 seconds ago on the phone. And I have no idea what's going on in their life. Maybe they just got the best news. Maybe they just won 100 million pounds in the lotto. You don't know. So you get to decide when somebody, when events happen, when things happen, you get to decide how you're going to react to them. And it actually reminds me of another book that everyone should read. It's called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a prisoner of war in Auschwitz in World War II. And before he was a prisoner of war, he was a psychologist. He was a psychologist afterwards as well. And he said that the 
he learned a lot of things. The book is incredibly powerful about you know human nature and 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 uh, basically it's about man's search for meaning and all that. But one of the things he talks about is where a man's and uh, obviously in, in he's talking about a person, such as the man's man and women. Where where a man's freedom lies, your freedom lies in your reaction to situations. He says that between stimulus and response, there's a gap. And in that gap is your freedom. Because in that gap is your opportunity to decide how to respond. And in the book he talks about people who were, you know, the, the, the Nazis were just randomly smashing people in the face with the butts of their rifles and laughing. I, I mean, I'm sure you know about the, the horrors that happened in World War II, but there was cruelty beyond imagination that he talks about in the book. And he says that when these things would happen to him, he knew that that was a stimulus, an event, something that he was not in control of. And between that stimulus, that thing happening, the, the being hit in the face with the butt of a rifle, between that thing happening and his response to that was his freedom. He could, re- he could respond by in his head saying, I'm a victim, it's not fair, per me. Or what he decided to do was to analyse all this. He's decided to put his... Uh, his his training, his psychological understanding of human beings into practice to 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 immediately forgive the Nazi, which sounds really weird, right? But that's what he would do. Is that to him, that's where his freedom lay, was in his control of his emotions. And it's I was going to say it's the same thing. It's not the same thing at all, right? As somebody letting the door close in your face, or somebody cutting you up in traffic, or not getting a promotion, or a friend uh, telling you lies, right? It's not the same. But they're all external events, things that are outside of you that you cannot control. What you can control is your response to those things. And that's what they're talking about when it comes to the fifth principle of uh, a good psychopath's guide to success. Take it on the chin and move on. Decide on what your response is going to be to these stimulations. The sixth principle then is to live in the moment. And what they mean by living in the moment is getting into that flow state. And and I guess this comes back to what I said at the beginning there about uh, a functioning psychopath can switch it on and off. One of the things I talk about in the first book, The Wisdom of Psychopaths, to be able to live in the moment, to be able to focus when you need to get into that deep focus, is things like meditation. And what I would, I I think meditation is a hugely important tool for for everyone. It's great to see that it's it's actually happening in schools now. Even kids are, are being taught how to meditate and about mindfulness and all that great stuff. But apart from meditation, I think what's really important is deliberate practice, is to be able to understand what when are the moments that I'm in that flow state where the, where the time just passes and you become one with the work, whatever the task is at hand. Uh, that's what psychopaths are able to do. They're, they're not thinking about the, the, the mortgage. They're not thinking about all these different things, uh, the, these external things that are not to do with the work in, in, the, in the present moment. Uh, I'm actually reminded of a Coldplay lyric for some random reason. What is the name of that song? Every Teardrop is a Waterfall, maybe, one of those songs. But there's a, a lyric in that song where he says, maybe I'm in the gap between the two trapeze. And I always think about that. When if, if, I, if you're a trapeze artist and you're in that gap, you've let go of one uh, trapeze and you're, you're looking to hold on to the other one, in that gap between the two trapeze, that is the, the quintessential moment that you are in that flow state. You're not thinking about anything else. Your life is so simple in that split second. All I have to do is grab this next swinging pole that's coming towards me. 
that's what a psychopath i'm not saying trapeze artists are psychopaths or, or bad psychopaths i'm just saying that it's about uh focusing when it matters being in that flow state i think a, a big way to get into that flow state is to to download into your head all this information all from places like this podcast from our courses from uh books that you read things that you pick up along the way and internalize it as much as you can and then when the opportunity presents itself try not to think about it just trust your your subconscious to to do the things for you whether it's a sales conversation where you're delivering a presentation where you're having a difficult conversation with a colleague you have to load all this stuff in first and then when the time comes hopefully it's all there for you and these things uh, they 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 crop up and um, allow themselves to be seen the seventh and final thing we'll finish on this one is uh uncoupling behavior from emotion what you want to do is you want to remove emotion from any situation right almost like it, it and i've said this actually in the the podcast where we talked about the the six principles of persuasion it's the same with these seven principles of a good psychopath's guide to success you explain them in very bullet point kind of ways right you explain this is the first one this is the second one, this is the third one. but in reality they all kind of overlap and, and there's hazy edges to them all if you like so the seventh the seventh principle here overlaps in my mind with the sixth principle the sixth principle sorry not the sixth principle the uh the fifth principle take it on the chin the seventh principle is to remove emotion from the situation so again go back to somebody letting the door slam in your face you can take it on the chin and move, literally take a door on the chin and move on but also the seventh principle here is uncouple emotion from the situation it's it's one of the best ways to to solve a problem i think is to not think emotionally about things uh, to begin with use emotion as a as a tool along the way um there's another she's i don't know how many books i've recommended here but there's another great book called the six thinking hats by edward de bono i don't know if you've ever heard of that book it's a very probably this day and age it will probably be a blog post the book itself is um padded let's say it's still a small book but the idea of the six thinking hats is that uh you know everyone that expression put on your thinking hat in this book the six thinking hats he talks about uh different colored hats six different colored hats and for each different hat each different colored hat that you would metaphorically put on uh when you're thinking through a problem uh it's to it's to get you to focus in one particular way so i i'll just see if i can remember them all now but the let's say for example the the green thinking hat is to mention everything positive about let's say it was a a new product that your company is is thinking about uh, developing should we or should we not develop this product should we put time effort and money into developing this product doing your research it's inconclusive blah 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 blah. you're at a point now where it's either go or stop right the green thinking hat is uh everything positive about uh launching this product all the great things that could happen red i think is all the negative things that can happen that could be the black hat i can't remember the exact colors but the idea is you think about everything positive about it then everyone together thinks about everything negative then everyone thinks about crazy uh creative ideas and um, how we could sell it you know how we'd market it blah 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 and it goes on through the different colored hats like that and the whole idea is not necessarily to remove emotion in that particular point but to focus your emotion focus on all the positive things focus on all the negative things focus on all the creative things focus on all the things that go right all the things that go wrong 
and it kind of overlaps with what we're talking about here with the seventh principle is to remove emotion from the situation is to uh, as much as possible don't make a decision when you are emotional generally it's um it's it's not a good idea to make make decisions when you're emotional because it could end up being the right decision or the wrong decision but you won't know because uh, you've done it in, in an emotional state always wait um when when you're thinking about sending that email and that's it they are the seven principles of the good psychopath's guide to success the two books the wisdom of psychopaths and the good psychopath's guide to success by kevin dutton it's k it's uh, k-v-i-n like me and uh, surname is dutton d-u-t-t-o-n and andy mcnab um who uh, was uh, special forces in the army back in the day and then wrote books and that's it so until next time uh, thanks again for tuning in uh, the 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 downloads as they say are going through the roof uh, very much appreciated uh, please do get in touch tell us what you like tell us what you don't like uh, tell two people that you know or don't know about this podcast uh, if you think it's of value and um, we will talk to you on the next podcast so until next time